You're listening to the Living Word Church Podcast. To learn more about Living Word Church and our service times, visit us online at livingwordli.org. I love it when a movie just kind of like captures the attention of the whole world. Like, you know when a movie just kind of like sweeps the nation? Usually once a year at least, there will be a movie that comes out that just everyone has to go see, right? Midnight release or everyone ends up seeing it in theaters. And if not, then you catch it on streaming. But everyone has seen it, right? This is never the movie that wins the Oscars. It's never those movies. But but usually there's at least one movie that just captures everyone's attention. And I love a good movie. Now, and I think it's a pretty universal thing. Like, I don't know anyone that hates movies, but, but I love a good movie. And I'm not like a cinema buff. I, I'm not, I've never seen like Citizen Kane. I'm not like that sophisticated, but I'm more of a film bro, okay? I, and I wear that with pride. I know film bros, we get a little bit of hate online because we like the same five movies. But, but I am a little bit of a film bro. And um, in this like kind of community of film and, and movie fans, there's been this recent discussion over the last couple of years about subverting expectations, you know what this is. You've seen this. Like, this is when a filmmaker uses certain plot devices to make you think that the story or the characters are heading in one direction, and then bam, something happens, and everything you expected has been subverted, right? And I'm sure you could think of your favorite twist endings. I thought about getting up here and just spoiling all the twists I could think of. I'm not going to do that. Um, but I'm sure you could think of your favorite ones. But what's funny is this conversation about subverted expectations has not been spurred on by the really good movie that do it, like the Christopher Nolans of the world, it's actually kind of been started because of one really bad movie, what I'm going to call, personally, the worst movie ever made. Of course, I'm talking about Star Wars The Last Jedi, okay? This movie was terrible. And you might be like, I thought Joe liked Star Wars. Like, I thought he, like, gets up there and he talks about Star Wars. This is what he does. No, no, no. I love Star Wars. I hate whatever that was because it was an anti-Star Wars movie. The very, like, outset of the movie is we're going to take everything that Star Wars fans expect from a Star Wars movie and then do the opposite. And what we got was an anti-Star Wars movie. And uh, I'm going to stop my rant because I could really start going. So if you're interested, I have a YouTube video for you. But if not, just remember... Remember, no one hates Star Wars more than Star Wars fans, okay? Just remember that. But life is full of subverted expectations. Like as you walk through your life, there will be things that fall short of your expectations. There will be things that exceed your expectations. Often, there will just be things that are different than what you expected. Like maybe you finally got that relationship, you finally got married, and you've been wanting to, to have that for so long, and then you realize, man, this is different than I expected it to be. Or you spent your whole life dreaming of that career and you worked really hard and you went to school and you got your degree and you got that job and then you realize, man, this is not what I thought it was going to be like. Or you had kids and you were looking so forward to being a parent and you realize this is much more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Man, life is full of subverted expectations. And following Jesus is really no different. See, you and me, we carry certain expectations into our relationship with Jesus. Whether you've been following Jesus for a short time or most of your life, you have carried certain expectations into that relationship. For some of us, it's all about what Jesus can do for me. That's an expectation we've brought in. So we end up fixating on things like blessing or provision and, and physical things that God does for us. Others of us, we've carried an expectation that Jesus won't want us because of our sin and our brokenness. 
Maybe because of the way that people have treated you or spoken over you in certain ways, you've thought, man, people don't want me because of my brokenness, and so Jesus is going to be the exact same way. Or it's been communicated to you by authority figures that you are only worth your ability to perform and obey, and so then a relationship with Jesus must be all about rule following. Because that's what every relationship I've ever had has taught me. And today, we're going to confront these expectations together. And I want you to be encouraged because you're not alone. Not only, I believe, are the people in this room probably wading through some of the very same things that you are, but we're going to see people in the pages of Scripture struggling with these expectations, And Jesus is going to confront those expectations. If you're not a follower of Jesus, um, we're going to talk about how Jesus, when he came onto the scene 2,000 years ago, um, confronted the expectations that people had of him. And he subverted them. And maybe uh, you're going to hear some things today that you can really identify with. Things like, oh, I thought a, a relationship with Jesus was all about rule following. Or, oh, um, you know, I think I'm too broken to ever uh, be wanted by God. But more than any of that, I hope you're going to walk away hearing the greatest subversion of all. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. I'll let you know when that comes out. But there is one subversion that stands high above the rest. And I really believe it has the power to change your life and change who you are. So we've been in this series. We kicked it off last week in the book of Mark. Mark was written by Mark, who's a friend of Peter. So he got all of his information firsthand from Peter. And the gospel writers approach their books in a very unique way and a very different way than you and I would approach writing a piece of history. See, if you and I were tasked with writing a narrative piece of history, like let's say the biography of a close friend, our approach would want would be to want to be as factually correct and chronologically correct as possible. Like that in our Western uh, mind would be what we want to do. I would want to make sure I have all my events in the right order and all the details down. And it's not that the, the apostles didn't care about those things. It's that their approach to writing these books was not just to communicate what happened, but a theme. They wanted their readers to understand the message behind it all. And so the different gospels have different themes that they communicate, and they organize these stories of, from Jesus' life in such a way to communicate those themes. And so we looked at last week, and we're going to continue to look at how the book of Mark communicates the theme, Jesus the servant. And when Jesus was on the scene, everyone had an expectation of what the Messiah was going to be like. Every Jewish person alive had expectations of what the Messiah was going to be like. I think the religious leaders thought that the Messiah was going to be like one of them. They thought he would be another religious leader, the best of them, right? He would enforce and obey the law to perfection. Others thought that uh, that the Messiah was going to be a revolutionary. They thought that he was going to bring physical deliverance from the bondage of the Roman Empire. They thought he would lead a rebellion and overthrow Caesar and implement an earthly kingdom right then and there. Every Jewish person alive had their expectations. But Jesus was going to come and subvert all of those expectations and show that he was much better than they ever thought he could be. And so today in Mark 2, we're going to see four different times that religious leaders came and confronted Jesus on different topics. And in each of those, we get a snapshot of Jesus subverting people's expectations. 
So we begin in Mark chapter 2 with kind of a familiar story. If you have been around church for a while, you grew up in church, you probably are familiar with this story. You have Jesus was invited to someone's house and he's preaching and everyone wants to hear what Jesus has to say. So he's in this house and it's just overflowing with people. Like I imagine it like there's people in the front yard, the backyard, like inside is packed. There's people sitting on shelves. They're in the windows. Like they just want to get within an earshot of Jesus. And then you have these four young guys, and they have a a friend who's paralyzed. And they have the faith to believe, man, if we could just get our friend in front of Jesus, he would be healed. Like, Jesus would heal our friend. And so these four young guys, I love it, because I think of them kind of like guys from my community group, like 19, 20 years old, like young and down for anything. You know what I mean? They're like, yeah, let's bring them to Jesus. Like, Like, they're just down for whatever. They, they belong to, like, the Jerusalem frat, I think. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like they, they come and, and like, they don't do the logical thing. Like, okay, there's four of us. Let's just wait by the exits, and we'll catch well, one of us will catch them. They're not, like, trying to get through the crowd. They don't even crowd surf the guy. Like, I thought they would have crowd surfed the guy to Jesus. No, they're like, let's just get on the roof, and we'll damage this guy's property. We'll dig a hole through the roof and lower our friend in. And so that's exactly what they do. And in verse 5, this is Jesus' reaction. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. First off, I just love that no one is concerned about the roof. Like there's a hole in the roof and no one seems to care. But Jesus' reaction is, son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, talk about like, a subverted expectation. If I was one of these friends, I would have been like, that's, that's great, but like, we brought him here for you to heal him. Like, he's paralyzed. And see, they, they were caught up in a physical mindset. They were thinking physically, and Jesus was thinking spiritually. He was looking deeper. Everyone, remember, everyone seemingly in this culture was thinking physically about the Messiah. He would come, he would deliver, he would enforce the rules. Jesus was thinking spiritually. And he's also doing this to prove a point, right? So the scribes are judging him in their hearts and he like reads their minds, which is crazy. And then he calls them out. And their complaint is that he's committing blasphemy because only God forgives sins. And the thing about that statement, only God forgives sins, is that they're right. Like they're correct. No Old Testament prophet claimed to be able to forgive sins. Even in the Jewish view, they didn't think the Messiah was going to be able to forgive sins. This was not in their framework. And so when they're like, hey, only God can forgive sins, Jesus is like, yeah, that's right, it's me. Like, he is making a claim that he is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh. And then I also think implicit here is that they kind of think Jesus is a bit of a fraud, Right, Because in their view, it's easy for Jesus to just get up and say, your sins are forgiven, because there's no way to verify that. Like If you were to get up and say, hey, take your mat and go home, and the guy doesn't take his mat and go home, then you'd know he's a fraud. So, so they're accusing him of doing the easier thing. 
But Jesus is like, no, 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 I'll do the harder thing. I'll heal the guy so that you know I have the authority to forgive sins. And this leads us to our first subverted expectation. Jesus' mission was spiritual, not just physical. See, everyone, like I said, everyone was caught up in thinking physically. Even these guys who, by the way, did nothing wrong. Like their faith is admirable. Their faith is commended. But, but they were still only thinking physically of what Jesus could do for them physically. And Jesus had so much more for them. And I think for some of us, like, we're praying for healing, we're praying for deliverance, we're praying for provision, and don't mishear me, like, I believe God does those things. We've seen God do those things. I believe he's faithful to do those things, but in the midst of that hardship, in the midst of what you have going on, he has spiritual work for you, spiritual blessing for you. Don't limit God to the physical when he has something spiritual for you. Because Jesus' mission was spiritual, not just physical. In verse 13, Jesus went out beside the sea, and the whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So here we see the call of Levi. And in order to really get what's going on here, we kind of have to understand what it means to be a tax collector in this culture. Because, like, you see the Pharisees' reaction, and it seems like a bit of an overreaction in our view. Like, I don't like taxes as much as the next guy, but if I met someone out in the hallway who worked for the IRS, I wouldn't, like, shun them. You know what I mean? But, like, the Pharisees hate this guy. They hate tax collectors. Like, they put tax collectors in their own category. They're like, he's eating with sinners and tax collectors? That's crazy. But to be a tax collector in this culture is to be a traitor, a traitor against your own people. See, because this is what it meant to be a tax collector. Tax collectors were Israelite men who willingly went to work for the very government that was oppressing them and their people. And one of the main arms of oppression for the Roman Empire was the tax system because it just depleted the resources of the people. And so to become a tax collector is to not only go and work for the oppressive government, but to aid in the oppression of the oppressive government. And then on top of that, it was a very lucrative job to be a tax collector because what you could do is inflate the taxes and then line your own pockets. So people would say, oh, let's say the tax was $10 that month. They'd say, okay, it's really 15 and then they'd steal that extra five from every single person. So they worked for the oppressive government, they aided in the oppression, and then they stole from their own people. All within a context where the people of Israel were called to be a community, a family, a tight-knit culture. It was treason of the highest kind. And even though tax collectors had authority, they were outcasts. Everyone hated tax collectors. No one would have associated with a tax collector. And then we see Jesus pursuing a tax collector. We see Jesus go to the tax collector. And then he eats at his house. And again, like we, we wouldn't think much of this. Like you meet a, a new couple and you're like, oh, why don't you guys come over for dinner? Like that's fine. Like, no, no, that's not how it worked in the ancient Near East. 
This is what Tom Constable says about um, hospitality. He says, hospitality was a sacred duty in the ancient Near East. When someone invited someone else to eat with him, he was extending a pledge of loyalty and protection to that person. To accept an invitation to dinner implied a willingness to become a close friend to the host. So the Pharisees are mad because it's not like Jesus is seen with the tax collector or he talks to him for a couple minutes. No, no, no. He hitches himself to Levi in one of the deepest kind of ways. He associates with Levi in one of the deepest ways. He invites Levi into his closest group of friends. He'll later name Levi Matthew. The Pharisees never would have expected the Messiah to associate with people like tax collectors because they hated tax collectors. But we see Jesus subvert expectations because Jesus came for the sinners, not the self-righteous. Jesus came for the sinners, not the self-righteous. The Pharisees, like I said, thought that he would be like them, but no, he came for the broken. He came for the outcast. He came for the person who thinks they're too far gone. And so for some of us today, there's like one of two things that we could be struggling with. For some of us, it's time to stop acting like we have it all together because we think God wants us to act all polished and cleaned up. Like, that's what the Pharisees did. I'm not saying you're a Pharisee, but, but what I am saying is, like, they were just as broken as Levi. They just hid behind their legalism. And some of us are broken. Some of us are dealing with real things, and we think that when we come into this space, we have to kind of act a certain way, speak a certain way, and we can't show people what's really going on. And for some of us, it's time to drop the act. And for others of us, we think that we're too broken, too far gone, too messed up for Jesus to even want us. And I just want to tell you, one, God is not waiting for you to get your act together before he wants closeness with you. He wants closeness with you right now. And the reason I know that is because you're exactly the kind of person that Jesus came for. He came for the sinner. He came for the broken. So if that's you, he wants closeness with you. If that's you, he's pursuing you like he pursued Levi. We see our third conflict in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them. Can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. So Jesus is approached by a group of people. It's probably actually a mixed group of people because Luke makes it sound like it's the Pharisees who ask him this question, but then Matthew sounds like it's John's disciples who ask him this question. So it's probably a big group of people, and they're asking, like, why aren't you guys fasting? We see everyone else fasting. And the important thing to note here is that this isn't a question about the law. See, we, I think it's easy to see fasting. We think, oh, this is a question about the law. It's not because it's not a holy day. If it was a festival or a holy day that required fasting, then this would be a question about the law. This is just a regular day. And we learn both in parts of scripture and from extra biblical sources that the Pharisees uh, fasted twice a week. They fasted every Monday and every Thursday. And they did so, uh, like surprise, surprise, out of their legalism, out of a desire to show other people how great they were and try and earn favor with God. So they're fasting out of legalism. But then we also see that John's disciples are fasting, John the Baptist. 
And so this begs the question, why would they be fasting on just a normal day? Commentators have come to the conclusion that it's likely because John was still in prison, and so they're fasting and praying for God to move and have John released from prison. So when Jesus is asked, why are they fasting, but you don't fast, he gives this example of the groom. And he says, when, when the wedding guests are with the groom, they don't fast. Because when you're with the groom, that's the time to celebrate. Like, that's the time to enjoy. The waiting is done when you're with the groom. That's the time to celebrate and enjoy. And what he's saying is, I'm the one that you're waiting for. Like, when you fast, you're waiting on God. When you fast, you're trying to pursue presence with God. And my disciples have it. They're with me now. Now is not the time to fast. Now is the time to enjoy. But then he really throws them for a loop. Because he's like, but a time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast on that day. Jesus is foreshadowing to what is to come. That he will be arrested. That he will be crucified. That he will rise again and ascend. And and in his ascension, he tells his followers, I am coming back. And when I do, that will be when the fullness of my kingdom is at hand. And this kind of leads us to our third uh, subverted expectation. Because Jesus' kingdom is already not yet. And I know this is kind of a weird like, phrase, and that's a weird concept to wrap your head around, but it is already at hand, but it has not yet been fulfilled. See, and the people of Jesus' day thought that when the Messiah came, he would institute his kingdom. Like They thought when the Messiah came, that would be the day of the Lord. End of story. And even in the Gospels, we see Jesus say things like, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's here. We sing things at Christmas time, like, behold, the king has come. Like, the very incarnation is the coming of the kingdom through Jesus, but it is not yet complete. It has not yet reached its fullness. A day is coming when Jesus will return and inaugurate his eternal kingdom with his people. And so we live in the tension that is already not yet. And we get our final confrontation and subversion in verse 23. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to make their way, picking some of the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, have you never read David and those who were with him when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Now here we have a direct confrontation about the law. The Pharisees are accusing Jesus of not keeping the law. And there's really two things happening here at the same time. The first on the surface level is a conversation about interpretation of the law. That Jesus and the Pharisees obviously disagree about the interpretation of the Sabbath. But under the surface is a real conversation about Jesus' relationship to the law and with the law. And so it's a Sabbath day, and, and the, the, the apostles are walking, they're, they're enjoying their day, and the Pharisees saw the Sabbath as just another day of rule. See, the Sabbath was meant to be 24 hours of rest for God's people, to reflect what God did in creation, that he worked for six days and rested on the seventh. But the Pharisees, in over centuries, rules and rules and rules were added to the Sabbath, to the point where the Sabbath honestly sounds like more work to keep than it's worth. 
Like, they had to count their steps. Even today, like, they're not allowed to push buttons. Like, it's crazy. It sounds like I'd rather just go to work another day than have to keep the Sabbath. But when I think about what Scripture says about the Sabbath and the true heart of the Sabbath, I'm reminded how awesome God is, how cool God is. Can I tell you what the Sabbath really is? Um, I heard it explained like this once. I want you to think back with me. Um, If you're a kid, you're not going to have to think too far back. But think back with me to when you were a kid and what it was like when you had a snow day. Snow days were the greatest days ever. And it's not just because school was out. Like, obviously, that was part of it. But, like, it was the best because the world shut down. Right? Like, your parents didn't go to work. There was no one on the roads. Like, everything was just blanketed in snow. And what was amazing about a snow day was the freedom to enjoy whatever you wanted to enjoy. Like, if you wanted to go outside and build the coolest fort ever, you could do that. You wanted to have a snowball fight, you could do that. You wanted to curl up inside, watch a movie, and have hot cocoa, like, you could do that. There was a freedom to enjoy and rest in a snow day. I remember my last snow day. I was in college, I was living in Virginia, and the thing about Virginia is like a half an inch is enough to shut the world down, okay? Like it was crazy. As a New Yorker, it was insane. I remember I would be like driving, and flurries would happen, and I'd see people abandon their cars on the highway. That's not a joke, this is real, okay? Me and my friends would go to Walmart like the night before a storm, storm, and we would like look for frozen food, and the shelves would be cleaned out, like no toilet paper, nothing, it was crazy, But I remember the freedom and the rest to enjoy the day. God wants you to have a snow day once a week. Like, let that sink in. God wants you to have the freedom to enjoy whatever it is that brings you pleasure, uh, the freedom to enjoy him and closeness with him and rest. He wants you to have that once a week. That is the coolest thing. But, of course, the Pharisees, they find a way to make it all about rules. And so the disciples, in my opinion, and I think Jesus' opinion, are doing exactly what they should be doing on the Sabbath. They're enjoying. They're taking a stroll through the field. It's probably a beautiful day. They're picking heads of grain and eating it. I guess that's good. I've never tried that, but sounds nice. And, and, and the Pharisees are like, nope, they're harvesting. That's, har- that's work. You can't do that. It's like the kid who like, tells the teacher they didn't collect the homework that day. You know what I mean? Just like the worst. But like Jesus, <laughs> you know, yeah. Sorry, if that was you, I'm sorry. Um, but they're completely missing the point of the Sabbath. And so Jesus kind of gives them this example of David. When David and his men were traveling. They were starving. They needed food. And so David did something that was not lawful. He went into the temple and he took the bread of presents, which was only for the priests, and he ate it and he gave it to his men. And Jesus, his question for the Pharisees was, is David wrong? And the answer is, of course, No. Because the needs of people was always the point. Do you know what I mean? Like caring for people was always the point. The law wasn't there just to have rules for rules sake. Caring for people was the point. That's why in a few verses, Jesus is gonna heal a man on the Sabbath day. And the point is caring for people was always more important. That was the heart of the law anyway. That's why he says the Sabbath was for man. It was for our good, not the other way around. Not for rules sake. And this kind of opens up this conversation about Jesus' relationship with the law. Because everyone had expectations of Jesus when it came to the law. The Pharisees really thought that he ought to be upholding the law, enforcing the law. Certainly their view of the Messiah would have been someone who came and enforced the law with, with a stringency. And then also his followers started to misunderstand his relationship with the law. 
Because they started to hear things that he said, and they started to see the way that he interacted with the Pharisees, and they started to whisper, like, maybe he's going to abolish the law. Like, maybe he's going to get rid of it completely, and he doesn't do either. Jesus came to fulfill the law. We see him say this in Matthew 5, 17 directly. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill And this is the thing, Jesus fulfills the law in that he embodies the heart of the law perfectly. Not only does he obey it perfectly, like he was the only person in all of history who obeyed the law with perfection, but he embodies its heart. And when I say by the heart of the law, what I mean is really two things. The law was meant to show God's people two things. One, that true life is found in him alone and that they could not achieve perfection on their own. And Jesus came to show us that life and freedom and forgiveness are found in him, and that we could not be perfect on our own, but that he would do that on our behalf. He embodies the heart of the law in that way. And this kind of leads us to that greatest subversion of all. That Jesus came not as a conquering king, not as someone desiring to be served, but as someone who would give his life on the cross as a ransom for us, he came as the suffering servant. He died in our place uh, so that we would be freely, fully, and forever forgiven in him, that we would enjoy an abundant life in him so that we would have eternal life with him. The greatest subversion of all is that Jesus came to die as a servant. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you remember earlier I said there was one subverted expectation that's high above the rest. It's this, that Jesus came to die as a servant. And if you and I went out to the mall or in the streets and started asking people, hey, what do you think it would be like if God came to earth? What do you think it would be like if God put on flesh and dwelled among us? I think we'd hear a lot of answers like, oh, he would be angry and he would judge us. Or he would want to be king, or, or he'd want to be served. And that's not what we see Jesus do. Jesus came to serve us, to suffer for us. He was Jesus the servant. And so if you've been weighed down by your sin and your bo- brokenness and your sh- guilt and your shame, Jesus wants to take that from you. If you've been feeling like life is empty and meaningless, today Jesus died so that you would have abundant life in him. If you don't know what happens after you die, Jesus guarantees for his followers eternal life with him. So if you want to place your trust in Jesus this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in a few minutes when we pray. But before we do that, I just want to take a couple of minutes and talk about how you and I might be called to respond to what we talked about today. So our first subverted expectation was that Jesus' mission was spiritual, not just physical. Again, that is not to say that God doesn't want to do things for you physically on your behalf. That is not to say that he doesn't have deliverance, provision, or blessing in store for you. We've seen God do these things in our midst here. Of course, we believe he's powerful and able to do it. But we also believe that he has something deeper for you through all that, like through the pain, through the sickness, through the need and the hardship. He has spiritual blessing for you. He wants you to know and experience his presence. He wants you to have a deeper understanding to the core of your being of his love And so often I'm reminded that the solution to so many of life's problems is to just be with Jesus. And those things just start to fade away. Our second subversion was that Jesus came for sinners, not the self-righteous. Can I tell you something? He's not waiting for you to be enough. And, And a hard but freeing truth is that you never will be enough. Like on your own, you'll never be enough. 
He's not asking you to be. He just wants you to be with him. And we just sang a song right before uh, we came out for the message, like, I'm not enough unless you come. Like, he's not asking you to be enough. He's just asking you to be with him. And, and for some of us, it's time to, to drop this everything is great facade that we're compulsed to, to bring out. Like, some of us just need to drop that and, and be willing to say, no, 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 like, things are a mess right now. And you might be like, you, you want me to show my brokenness to other people? And the truth of the matter is, one, as God's, like, people, we are called not to judge each other in our brokenness, but to bear one another's burdens. But second, if you want any shot at having community here, like at having the depth of friendship and, and, and like almost brother sisterly love here, then you, you have to drop the everything is great all the time. You have to be willing to show your brokenness. I remember I was at community group this week actually and one of the guys in my community group just shared something like so real and it was like the realest thing anyone had said that day. Like, we've been talking, and it's not like anyone was, like, lying or saying anything not true, but, like, this, this person just decided to get real for a second. And I remember it, like, it did something. When someone is willing to just be real about where they're at and not just give a cookie-cutter answer and fake their way through the hardship, man, it does something for community. For others of us, it's time to stop believing I'm too broken or I'm too sinful for God to want me. You are exactly who Jesus came for. He came for the broken. He came for the sinner. He came for the outcast. And if that's you, then you are exactly who he wants. You are exactly who he pursues. And he wants you to have closeness with him right now. He's not waiting for you to get your act together. He's not withholding anything from you. We also saw Jesus' kingdom is already and not yet. So we live in this tension of the kingdom is already here, it's already at hand, yet we're waiting for it to bring its fullness. And so this tension is the tension between freedom and waiting. We walk in the freedom that God has given us, yet we're waiting for something to come. And really the burden of that is not only just walking in that freedom, but then bringing the gospel to those who haven't heard it. Being willing to pursue those who don't know Jesus before his kingdom comes. And lastly, we saw that Jesus came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to abolish the law and bring about anarchy. He didn't come to enforce the law and bring about legalism. He came to fulfill it and embody it. And remember, it points us to that greatest subversion of all, that God himself dwelled among his people, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for us. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for all the ways in which you subverted our expectations. You didn't come as a leader of a rebellion. You didn't come as a conquering king, but you came as Jesus the servant. And I pray for the person right now, God, who thinks that you're waiting for them to get their act together before they can have closeness with you. And I pray that you would just dispel that lie this morning. That you would show us you want us to have closeness with you right now. For the person who just has felt that compulsion to put on the, the happy face and, and pretend like everything is all right when it's not, God, I pray that we would just surrender that at your feet. You don't want us to fake it. You want us to be real and bear one another's burdens. That's how we get real community here. If you want to place your trust in Jesus this morning, I want you to just pray with me right now. You can pray something like this. 
Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins on the cross and that you rose again and that you offer me new life, abundant life, and eternal life. Freedom and forgiveness. God, I want those things. Would you come into my heart? Would you change my life? And if you pray that, we say this a lot, if you prayed that, it's not about a formula of words that bring about salvation. God sees your heart this morning. And if you prayed it, or maybe if you were scared to pray it, but you wanted to, I just encourage you, like, come talk to me or Andrew or Doug after service. We would love to just talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you subverted all of our expectations in the most amazing way by coming to die as Jesus the servant. We love you. We pray this all in your name, Jesus.